Revelation, the church series, part 15. We're looking at the end of Babylon, so we're dealing with the third aspect of Babylon, Babylon 3. And we're specifically looking at the book of Revelation. Now, I do apologize for having to insert this uh, around 19 or 20 in the series, but I was incapacitated uh, for for a couple of weeks there and was unable to get this series out at that point in time. Um, I'm looking at this series and putting it into three aspects, uh, the judgment that's coming on Babylon, and then if I can turn to my notes, uh, the reasons for the judgment, but the main reason for this section is calling people calling God's people, the children of God, out of Babylon. That's the main one, and I'll probably give quite a bit of attention to that, As a, a, but I'll, I will set the stage a little bit before with those other two. Uh, it does go a bit long. I do go off my point a little bit here and there, but it, going off the point, I've, done, I've made that choice because essentially it's an illustration or a point that I want to use to equip you with a tool that you can basically take into this Babylonian system and um, be able to recognize it and extract yourself from it and see where all the dangers lie with regards to how the system is coming in at you. So let us begin. We begin with Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 to 3. Uh, oh, another point that I want to make before I read the pa- these three verses is this. I will be using a lot of scripture in this section. Uh, especially in the last section when I'm comparing the different types of Christians that live in Babylon, I will be just reading so much scripture to you. So uh, bear that in mind. Um, Revelation 18, 1 to 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Now this is the doom song, a prophetic announcement by God of what will take place with the system that has tried to destroy mankind, dominate mankind, rule mankind, and get mankind to basically and ultimately worship the devil. Um, I'm going to be showing you various scriptures of the different prophetic words to different manifestations of Babylon through history as well in, 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 in just a few minutes. But I want to remember, I want you to remember what I told you, that this is a system that has been governing fallen man throughout history. So each of these passages where, we, where, where the prophets and the writers of the Bible under the authority and anointing of the Holy Spirit speaks a judgment on Babylon and shows you how Babylon gets judged will ultimately give you a picture of what the Revelation 13, 17, and 18 Babylon, the final Babylon, the mother of harlots, what will happen to her. And so you can pick out and extract quite a few things from those past judgments and look at what is going to happen 
to this system of governance that is ruling mankind, a system of religion, politics, and finances, and what is going to happen to this system. Uh, it's going to show you how the financial system collapses. It's going to show you what's going to happen to the religious system, and then also what's going to happen to the, uh, the, the politicians and the political system. Remember, religious Babylon gets destroyed by the Antichrist, but he also takes over Mammon in the middle of the seven-year period. And, and, and his rule will end in judgment at the Battle of Armageddon when, the, the, when this age ends and the millennium reign of Jesus Christ begins. So oftentimes when people come and talk to you about the end of the world, this is the end of the world in times, what is actually going to happen is it's going to be the end of this age the age of the church or the age of the Gentiles, and the beginning and institution of the reign of Christ, the millennium reign of Christ. So I've read to you Revelation 18 verse 1 to 3. Now I'm going to compare a couple of different scriptures throughout the Old Testament that deals with uh, the judgment on Babylon. So we'll start with Isaiah 13, 19 to 22. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the pride and the glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. So just, just let me pause and just let me point out two things in that passage of scripture. The first thing is, if you want to look at judgment on Babylon, and when, when the Bible highlights something, it connects two things. For example, here we have Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you go and study, and I'm going to be talking about Lot and his wives later on, if you go and study what happened around Sodom and Gomorrah, what was the lifestyle around Sodom and Gomorrah, what events transpired that brought about its judgment, and then you will be able to look at society, a picture of society, and then you will be able to see, okay, and compare it to today and the coming Babylon in here. Another interesting point is that Jesus mentions um, Lot and he, and he says you need to pay attention to Lot when he is talking about end times as well. Uh, verse 21 of Isaiah 13, but the desert creatures will lie, their jackals will follow houses, there will be owls will, will dwell, and there will be wild goats will leap about, hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals, her luxurious places, her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. The picture that you're going to be getting out of these passages of scripture is a desolation of a ruin where nothing but nature comes back and inhabits it, and it becomes a haunted place. And so, you know, when you go past a ruin and it looks dingy, dull, haunted, and you can just imagine ghosts of previous inhabitants haunting the place. Well, this is the picture that the Bible will be giving you about the judgment that's going to be coming on Babylon. It's an irrevocable, irreversible judgment, and there's going to be no ability to fix this system after it's been judged ultimately by God. Jeremiah 50, 39. The desert creatures, hyenas will live there, and there will be the owl will dwell there. It will never again, notice those words, they come through all the way through, the word never, never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. So once this final judgment kicks in, it's not going to be resurrected. It's, it's, just, it's not going to have the ability, mankind will not have the ability to resurrect this system again. 
Uh, Zephaniah 2.13 to 15, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. The one thing about the Babylonian system is that it needs a divine intervention to basically bring this thing to destruction. Um, But in the interim, the church needs to be separated within the system by living a life of righteousness and separation and holiness to God, and living under the sort of the types of anointings of Elijah, Jehu, um, real fiery people, John the Baptist, that were that that went head to head with the system, and this is what's going to be needed to basically put the system onto its back heels, uh, if it's not the final judgment where it comes into play. And so, dealing with the system is actually going to have to be God that comes in and dismantles it once and for all so he will stretch out his hand Um, verse 14 flocks and herds will lie down and then again it's just it goes on and on all through verse 15 uh, about the 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 destruction that's going to take place so go read that passage of scripture so what i see taking place here in revelation 18 is the final destruction and dismemberment of this system and uh, the, 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 the destruction of what the Lord is going to do in the system. What I want to do now is I want to turn your attention to the book of Daniel chapter 2. And I want to read verses 24 to 45. As I said to you, I'm going to be reading a lot of verses in this section, Babylon 3. And it's important that you understand how much this is mentioned. Um, Babylon effectively is the world. So whenever you look at the world, the world system, the system of the world, and when Jesus is talking about you being separate from the world, not liking the world, not loving the world, not having connections with the world, it's talking about Babylon. Um, I want to read this to you. I want you to, I'll highlight verses 34 to 35 as well while I'm reading this. But it is essential for you to begin to understand that uh, there is an end coming to the system. So, so Daniel now is coming to interpret the dream of the king. So in verse 24, we pick up the story. Then Daniel went to Arach, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to, them, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arach took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah, who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Now that's important for you to understand. Now, by placing that statement in there, it now becomes eschatological. It now becomes stuff about the end times. And so now this passage will now start taking us all the way through history. It will span history from Daniel, from Nebuchadnezzar, all the way through to the mixture of iron and clay empire of the Antichrist. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Verse 29. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. 
and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anybody, anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now, 34 and 35. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Now this is talking about the kingdom of God. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So we're talking about what is to come. So the kingdom of God is going to come and destroy the kingdom of man, Babylon, ruled over by the Antichrist. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Now that section there, you can apply to all the passages where it talks about the judgment that will come on the final Babylon. And you will see that this judgment is going to be so final. This, this, this reckoning and this giving of account of itself to God is going to be so final that this system will never, ever again be able to rise, raise its head and reconstitute itself. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And now we start to look at the rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the planet, which is the millennium reign. That's my view of this, this passage of scripture. Verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they lived, he made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partially baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom will, also, will, will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is a true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Powerful, powerful, powerful. My definition of Babylon. Babylon is the satanic system of government of this world into which mankind and demonic spirits work together for the one purpose of uniting all mankind into worshiping Satan 
And this will ultimately take place in the tribulation under the Antichrist. It will start in the middle of the tribulation and through the, marking, the mark of the beast and it will culminate with Jesus' return and destroying this kingdom. My definition of one of the arms of Babylon, the religious arm, is that the Babylonian religion that is propagating and its mask, as you've already, as I've taught you in the postmodernism, the mask of postmodernism, behind this mask, this religion is a non-absolute, flesh-gratifying, do-it-yourself, mixed into copious dollops of Gnostic worship that will point you to Satan. You've got to get to understand what those mean and you've got to get to have an have a, a, a intrinsic understanding of those two definitions. Because as you walk around in the world today, you are walking in the Babylonian system and Babylon is at this point rising all around the world and the persecution against the saints is beginning to start to come more and more into the forefront of our consciousness. So I want you to really begin to understand what you're looking at and what you're dealing with and take the blinkers off and begin to start waking up and actually seeing and being able to recognize for yourself anytime anyone comes to you and gives you a doctrine or gives you a teaching or tries to tell you about something regarding, the, regarding God, you can be able to recognize it, whether it's Babylonian or whether it's biblical Christianity. Um, I think that we will see that this religious arm, this one world religion, it will probably emerge completely, and this is my personal view, as a result of the uh, sixth trumpet being blown. Uh, so go and, 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 and read in Revelation about the sixth trumpet. And I think that what is going to happen, this is my view, there's, uh, to, to kick, off the sev- the, the kick off the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy, the kickoff of that, in my view, will be a massive war where one third of mankind is going to be destroyed. The epicenter of that war will be somewhere in the Middle East, but it's going to have an impact, a worldwide impact. And one third of humanity is going to perish. And the horror of the level of destruction and, and, and death that's going to occur will, will push mankind into the arms of religious Babylon and the false prophet who's going to rule Babylon. And he's going to bind them because of the horror. And he's going to unite them religiously. He's going to unite them economically. He's going to unite them politically. And eventually, over three and a half periods from the war and the signing of the peace treaty with Israel, in which the Antichrist will be present at that point, he will then have mankind within three and a half years bowing down at the feet of the Antichrist to receive the mark of the beast. And that will begin the three and a half years, which will lead up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that beginning of the three and a half years, the signpost that you need to look at there will be the implementation of the financial Babylonian mammon system, the mark of the beast, which is also the religious worship of the beast, which is satanic worship. So that's basically where they're headed for. 
And at that point in time, the middle of the tribulation period, I feel and I think that religious Babylon and the false prophet and Babylon itself will ultimately get destroyed there and, and the Antichrist will become the de facto ruler of the world because he will just consume religious Babylon, consume political Babylon and consume the financial system and take control of it all. Um, <clears throat> verse 2, Revelation 18. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. Notice the repetition of fallen, and that probably indicates that this is a guaranteed thing. This is, this is a done deal. God has set it in motion, and this is exactly what is going to happen. Genesis 41 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter had been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So two warnings to Pharaoh, done deal, judgment's coming. Two warnings to Babylon, done deal, judgment's coming. Now for those people who, you know, I've, I've been preaching on this since I, I could basically start preaching uh, for the last 20, 30 years I've been in ministry. And the one of the one of the most irritating arguments is when people come along and say, Ah, oh, never gonna happen. And they don't understand the long suffering of the Lord. 2 Peter 3 8 gives us a good dis- depiction on how God views time. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So in God's eyes, when he says something, it's gonna happen. Now, in, in our time frame, it might take a thousand years. But it will happen. You know, it took a long time before the flood came. God's warning to Noah, build the ark, took a long time before the flood actually came. The long build-up with a lot of warning for God needs to be a sign for people to say, Hey, hold on a second. I need to pay attention here and I need to get my, my, uh, my, my affairs in order. In this long build-up, there is a determination and a judgment taking place with regards to the moral condition of man and the spiritual condition of man. And so, so they are beginning to heap up sin. And it will reach a level where then the judgment will come in. It will reach that level where God says, okay, now. And you'll read, if you go and read the, the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll have that indication there as well. But when that judgment actually comes. So the warnings take a long time. But when the judgment time actually comes, it's swift, it's horrific, it's irreversible, it's violent, and it's absolutely unstoppable. But Babylon, now this is this is the, the, the thing now. If we go back to that the beginning of the rise of the final Babylon just post the blowing of the, the, the sixth trumpet, the, the war where one third of mankind is destroyed in that peace treaty. What, what blows my mind is that Babylon and all its supporters, even though they are going to be shocked, are going to be crying foul on God. They're going to be accusing him of heavy handedness. They're going to be laying this at his feet and blaming him and, 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 and having a hard word to Christians. But like all bullies, 
they will always try to blame someone else for what they have done when they've been caught. This judgment when it comes is going to be a just judgment, and I'm going to be talking about it later. And it is a judgment that is going to be in response to the misery, the pain, the suffering, the destitution, the death that this system has sown on mankind, and especially on the servants of God down through history. And that is why when God finally judges the system, He is going to break it, and it's going to be an irreversible break. It's going to become a haunt, a place of destruction. It's going to become utterly desolate. And so that is what is waiting, and that is the future of this world system. Fallen, fallen. It's it's already written in in, in God's eyes. We've already got it written in the Word of God. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me move on to the second part and we'll start talking now about why is Babylon being judged. Now, it gives me the chills when I actually read this. You know, the, the, the finality, the finality of the word never. Uh, just, just, just imagine this for a second. Just try and think of the finality of the word never. When God says it. You know, oftentimes when we say never, well, but when God says it, the finality of it is irreversible. What blows my mind is oftentimes, you know, in the old days of the kings, when the king would issue a decree, not even he could change the decree. And so mankind understood the finality of an order that was given by a ruler. Yet today we mess around and we think we can chop and change and we can change God's mind on this, that and the other. And God will change his mind. And one of the teachings that are coming out of the emergent church is this universalism where don't worry, you know, you can cut the heads of Christians as much as you like, but ultimately we're all going to end up in, in heaven, you know, uh, around a little campfire singing Kumbaya with God there because he's going to forgive us all. And they don't read their Bible. They don't read the finality of when God speaks. Never. Real finality in that word, and it chills me. And yet people are running around saying that, Hey, don't worry about God's judgment. God's love will trump it all. All right, let's look at the passage in verse 22 to 24 of Revelation 18. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpets will never be heard in you again. Nor worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. For me, I just look at that and I think, well, maybe normal human life, but also Jesus and the bride, the church. Your merchants were the world's most important the world your merch sorry, your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. 
So in verse 23 and 24, we've got, we, we're given three reasons why this devastation is going to take place. And I'm going to briefly go through one or two, and then I'm going to, in, in number two, I'm going to just go to a sidetrack, as I said to you earlier on, and just focus on a specific area because it will give you a bit of an equipment tool in terms of recognizing a method that Babylon uses to try and come and seduce you. All right, firstly, first reason. Verse 23, your merchants were the world's most important people. Um, you know, I look at the world today, and as I said in my, my, my book, Finding the Discipleship Environment, I'm neither conservative or liberal in my views. I'm a kingdomist. I believe Jesus needs to rule this world. Um, but in looking at the more right-wing uh, capitalist I see the rich, the uber-rich are getting richer and, and, and there's this discrepancy growing at a frightening rate. And I look at the political class because they're really becoming a class and how the two seem to be walking around arm in arm, gorging themselves on the backs of mankind. And... They're going to be held accountable because God put people in place with gifts to lead and guide mankind. And if they have sold themselves out to Babylon for power, wealth, and luxury at the cost of God's people and the people of the earth, there will be a reckoning. And so men or women whom the world regards as great, they, they've enriched themselves, they've lifted themselves up in pride because of Babylon's influence through greed, bribery, corruption. They're enticing themselves on the backs of the people of the earth and they have absolutely no regard. A reckoning is going to come. Now listen to this passage in Isaiah 23 verse 8. Who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose trades are renowned in the earth? Now go and read that and go and read also about Tyre, the prophecy against Tyre. And you'll see a twofold prophecy, a prophecy against the spirit behind Tyre. And it gives you a revelation to what happened with the devil. And then it speaks to the king of Tyre and their merchant princes. So in politics, on both sides of the aisle, if I look at Q&A today, I t I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm in despair that there seems to be no one on either side who has the ability to govern well. And, and it's become such a, pardon, 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 a partisan sideshow of, of people screaming and trying to gain the upper hand and promote these Babylonian ideologies that are ultimately going to get us bowing down to Satan. I see a neglect I see a complacency, I see an ineptitude on such a grand and shocking scale, and I see them rushing us into deals and treaties that are going to ultimately put a, 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 um, shackles around our necks and they're going to make us bow down to the Antichrist when he comes. Sounds ominously like Genesis chapter 11 verse 3 to 4. They said to each other, "Come, let us make and bake them. Th uh, uh, let us ma let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly." 
They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we will make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you go and read in Daniel about the, 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 the revelation of the Antichrist and who he is, he is the one that is going to shout to the heavens and defame God to his face with mankind standing at his back and the chains of, around their necks in his hands. They're going to be judged for that. Number two, by your magic spells, all the nations were led astray. So, as a result of the first reason, Babylon seduces the nations. She sits on the seas of many nations' languages. I've told you that already. So, she deceives the nations now through witchcraft to wrong thinking. So, they are placing their need for joy in the wrong places. So, joy, security, they're looking for security in the wrong places. They're looking for honor in the wrong places. They're looking for the meaning of life in the wrong places. I mean, the world, is it's happening so fast, is becoming upside down. Um, gender identity is becoming sexual identity and everything is around sex now. It's unbelievable where people are trying to find meaning in life. And, and, and Babylon is, is, is giving them all of this. You know, and, 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 and she's using witchcraft to seduce them and give them whatever they want. But there will be a price. And that price will be a shackle around their neck. And they will bow to a Nebuchadnezzar. They will bow to an emperor. They will bow to the Antichrist. So she uses sorcery. She uses witchcraft to seduce the nations into following her. Listen to 9 verse 21 and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on. I want you to notice the word they and, and I'll explain it a bit later on. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Um, go and read 2 Kings 9 22 and read about the story of Jehu. Uh, Jerome saw Jehu he asked have you come in peace Jehu? So someone who's sort of associated with a Babylonian system, a Babylonian woman, Jezebel. So Jehu is coming, and he's coming to confront Jezebel and kill her. How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? I don't know where the church leaders, or so-called church leaders, they're actually hirelings, come to the conclusion that we can have dialogue with idolaters and witch practices of witchcraft and promoters of the Babylonian system, the, the wizards and magicians of the Babylonians. I don't know how we can have a connection with these people. There can be no peace between us because she, she kills the saints. Isaiah 47, 9. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of all your many sorceries and all your potent spells. Isaiah 47.12 Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. 
Nahum 3 verse 4, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. <coughs> Let's just look at witchcraft for a second here, because witchcraft is actually mentioned as a fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I like to say, etc. Um, witchcraft, we get the word pharmaceutica. It means to, in my mind, it means to begin to try and influence people through the use of drugs or the use of sorcery, spiritual use, or the use of emotional manipulation. This is rife, not only in the church, but it is rife in it. It, it is rife in the. Um, sorry, my phone just dis disrupted my thoughts for a second. It is actually rife within families as well and within people's lives. So I want to I want to just spend a bit of time here, just highlighting and looking in at what witchcraft is, because witchcraft is one of the one of the many tools, but one of the most potent tools that the Babylonian system and the Babylonians, the hirelings, the wolves in sheep's clothing, will actually use against you. And so you need to be aware of, of, of what takes place. Here are a few scriptures to think of. Uh, Revelation 9.21. I'm just bringing that back to your attention now. The word they. Who is they? Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their spiritual immorality or their thefts. In the scripture, it's, it, it's unbelievable for me to see because they, the word they, they are actually two-thirds of the world's population who survive the blowing of the sixth trumpet, which introduces us, I believe, into the seven years and which causes the rise of the final Babylon, the false prophet, and they've signed a peace treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years. Uh, this is going to be set up after the Third World War that devastates one-third of mankind's population. Now, remember what I said to you earlier on about the, when judgment comes, people are so horrified. But I want you to notice the word they did, nor did they repent All this is taking place. All this that create all this that created this war has taken place. But they still do not want to repent. And then when the judgment actually falls on Babylon in the middle of the, of the uh, religious Babylon in the middle of the tribulation and the end of the final aspect of Babylon the antichrist's rule at the end of the tribulation they're all shock and horror. How can this happen? This is not fair. Yet, they did not repent of their murders, of their magic arts, of their sexual immorality, and of their thefts. 12 to 21, Revelation 9. Let's, let, let's look at the story here. And, and, and with that introduction, you can basically begin to understand um, what happened and then you can also i want you to notice the plagues 
because this is going to have an important aspect in the next section in coming out from her. Come out from her, don't partake of her sin, so that you're not partaking of her plagues, of her judgment. Verse 12, the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before the Lord. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who, were kept there, uh, who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, how is that going to take place? Verse 16 gives you an indication of what will take place. And so this is going to be an actual war because immediately he starts to talk about armies and the equipment of armies. So can you imagine a first century man, AD, trying to describe warfare in our century? And this is what you get. The number of the mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this. They had breastplates with fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. So obviously we're looking at the war machines of today. Artillery, tanks, uh, helicopters, fighter planes. And that you, you can, you can, well, I can read that into that. That's my personal view. Verse 18 A third of mankind was killed by three plagues fire, smoke, sulfur that came out of their mouth. The power, that's interesting to note, that's the plagues fire, smoke, sulfur, the results of warfare, the results of fighting, modern, the modern use of weapons. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Now, pay attention. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Okay? Verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, regarding witchcraft. Now, when I did the series on philosophies, I shared with you, and I said that the devil doesn't take you from worshipping God directly to worshipping him. He'll take you away from any spirituality whatsoever through worldviews and philosophies like Darwinism, etc. And this is what has been influencing the Western world. But what he then does is once he gets you to that far out place where there is no spirituality, there is no God, and we're trying to make understanding out of this society we've created through this godless philosophy and the impact that it's having on our on our lives he then starts to reintroduce mankind through babylon to babylon and the babylon religion that's been going on all the way through and he gives it various different types of camouflage which we see coming through in through the church and which i've been explaining to you so 
what you've got to understand is that the spiritual realm carries a power that can be manifest in our realm. So, in Exodus chapter 7 verse 11, we see the clash between Moses and Pharaoh, or the clash between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian musicians also did the same things by their secret acts. So up to a certain point, they were able to reproduce the supernatural signs that Moses was doing under God's instruction. Now, what is interesting, and this is, this is something to pay attention to, especially for people today in the church who, who elevate a manifestation of signs, so they, they more often experience experiential theology, signs and wonders. They hunt after that. This is a frightening verse of scripture uh, for those kind of people, especially if those signs are not actually coming from God. Verse 22, something interesting takes place with Pharaoh. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Very interesting. You follow after false doctrine. You follow after the manifestations of these Babylonian preachers. Signs, wonders and all this nonsense. And I've shown you some of the clips of the more extreme kinds going on at Lakeland, going on in South Africa. What happens to the believer is your heart becomes hardened. And when your heart becomes hardened and you start accepting this message from Babylon, you stop listening to God. And then God will start to hand you over to the consequences of your choices. And you can read about what that looks like in Romans chapter 1. Isaiah 47, 9, but of those, but of these. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood ministry and just a lack of purpose and, and, and whatever okay, that's going on. I haven't done a word study on widowhood, but children is a loss of ministry and a loss of followers coming in. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. Uh, verse 12, same chapter, Isaiah 47. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood, perhaps you will succeed, perhaps you will cause treasure, uh, terror. So I've already explained to you about how the devil takes us, has taken the Western world away from a spiritual belief in, in God and in his spirituality, moved us out of it into a point where there is no spirituality, and now he's reintroducing us to the second heaven. We are now building bricks and mortars and a tower to heaven, and that tower to heaven is a linking in of mankind with the spirit realm of the devil, the second heaven, the angelic realm. Now, he's telling us that this is benign. This realm is benign. Now, be very careful now. This is, I'm tying stuff up from Gnosticism into this. Postmodernism is the current camouflage of the Babylonian religion today. And we've been trained in modernism, in Western pe the Western people, Western world people, 
to not recognize the spirit realm. But now postmodernism is reintroducing people into the spirit realm. But they are now telling people the spirit realm is benign. And through Gnosticism, and through the eyes of the Gnostic, through certain incantations, certain statements, certain things that you do, you can then begin to control the spirit realm. Now, if you want, you can go back and re-listen to the, 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 te- the, 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 the definition of Gnosticism and what it essentially is. But now, the minute you begin to dabble in the spirit realm through mantras, through false prophetic prayers, through false prophecies, you are now entering into the realm of witchcraft. Now, there are two aspects of witchcraft that you need to understand. because, And once you understand the mechanics of this, You'll be, you'll be able to begin to understand when a person comes to you how they are trying to influence you. The first form is where a person or a user taps into the supernatural forces that are not from the Holy Spirit in order to get an outcome they desire. Okay, It involves cursing people with sickness, with death. It involves influencing people with regard to their money. It involves trying to influence relationships. <coughs> essentially, <coughs> excuse me. Essentially, witchcraft is there to get you to do something that you do not want to do, but the other person wants you to do for them. So, the first aspect the person does is it uses supernatural forces to begin to try and influence you in specific ways. Now, our Western mind bulks at that because we've been trained that this is. Not true, but postmodernists are now being introduced into the spiritual realm, and this is what is starting to take place within their lives. And words carry power, especially if they are backed by a supernatural force, either the Holy Spirit or demonic force. The other form, which is also agnostic in religion, and you see it in the church, you see it in the hirelings, the, the, the wolves, the false prophets, false apostles. You also see it in relationships. Uh, a pseudo-spirituality that is used to gain influence or control by the person trying to gain the influence, wearing a super-spiritual mask and carrying a, a greater revelation and mystery and understanding than you do. And so they will be basically begin to try controlling you because they claim to have more divine revelation than you and therefore you need to listen to them. An easy way to recognize witchcraft coming against you is by the two evil children of witchcraft, which is domination and manipulation. The essence of witchcraft is to gain control over another person for your own use. Getting other people to do what you want to do against their own will. Getting other people to give you money against their will. To get other people to do things in relationships against their will. To seduce you to getting doing things you don't want to do. So... It includes the supernatural form, but more often, more often, 
it comes through emotional manipulation or domination. And you see that especially in relationships. So lying, uh, selectively telling the truth, drip feeding selective information, uh, telling one person one thing and another person another thing to try and divide people so that you can basically destroy relationships and, and, and create relationships with people you can control and getting other people away from you or from that relationship. Sales tactics even. So when we use emotions to get and to do our will or to hold on to relationships or affections in a domination, dominating or a manipulating way, we're basically stepping into the world of witchcraft. When we use the flesh, now remember, witchcraft is a, is a fruit of the flesh. When we use the flesh to hold hostage relationships and people against their will, to do our will, to get our way, we are using the uh, witchcraft, the principles of witchcraft, and coming in behind witchcraft, you're going to have a whole lot of hosts of demonic forces that will begin to influence those situations in your life. And that will create havoc within your life. And that's one of the reasons why the, the Babylon is going to be judged. Because it is using witchcraft to seduce the nations. The third reason for Babylon's judgment is it's because it's destroying and killing the saints. Verse 18, uh, chapter 18, 22-24 of Revelation. In her was found the blood of the prophets and God's holy people. And of all who have slaughtered on the earth. Jeremiah 51.34 may, may the violence done to our flesh be on Babylon, says the inhabitants of Zion. May our blood be on those who live in Babylon, says Jerusalem. Verse 36 of the same chapter. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. See, I will defend your cause and avenge you. I will dry up her sea, her sea people and make her springs dry. Verse 49, same chapter, Jeremiah 51. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. So the responsibility of the blood of God's saints martyred for their testimony lies at the feet of this ungodly system which comprises of man and demonic forces who want to set up a rule and an empire apart from God. And they've gone about and murdered the prophets, especially since the prophet will come in and speak against Babylon. Uh, the, the prophetic ministry is, is, is a ministry that has been seriously attacked and, and, and seduced by Babylon because the prophetic ministry is the one ministry that, is, that has the ability to recognize when that Babylonian spirit or the, the, the system of Babylon is trying to come in and influence the church. And so they, they go after the prophets, they go after the prophetic ministry in a serious way. Uh, killing the saints also is bad, as, is, is bad as well. Now, unbelievers have killed believers uh, all the time. Uh, directly and indirectly to pursue their goal, which is to rule mankind and to build up their system to heaven. Uh, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So that's the story of Cain and Abel. Nothing is going to go unjudged. 
there's going to be an accountability for what the enemy has done regardless. So we need to be very clear, especially when I go into the next part of not having anything to do with this Babylonian system. Babylon has been responsible for all the murder and, and, and pain and suffering on this planet. And the guilt rests on her completely. And God is going to come and judge her. Babylon has been killing saints down through the ages. I mean, the Inquisition is Babylon. I want to read to you a section, a passage out of Haley's Bible handbook on the Inquisition and the brutality of the Inquisition and the number of people that this office of the Roman Catholic Church has murdered. The Inquisition called the Holy, Office, called the Holy Office was instituted by Innocent III and perfected under the second coming, uh, the second following Pope Gregory the Ninth. It was the Church Court for the detection and punishment of anyone suspected. Uh, uh, Punishment of heretics, sorry. Under it, everyone was uh, was required to inform against heretics. Anyone suspected was liable to torture. Without knowing the name of his accuser, the proceedings were secret. The inquisitor pronounced sentence and the victim was turned over to the civil authorities to be imprisoned for life or to be burned. The victim's property was confiscated and divided between the church and the state. In the period following... Innocent III, the Inquisition did its most deadly work in the southern France, but claimed vast multitudes of victims in Spain, Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands. Later on, the Inquisition was the main agency in the papacy's effort to crush the Reformation. It is stated that in the 30 years between 1540 and 1570, no fewer than 900,000 Protestants were put to death in the Pope's wars for the extermination of the Waldensians. Think of the monks and the priests directing with heartless cruelty and inhuman brutality the work of torturing and burning alive innocent men and women and doing it in the name of Christ by the direct order of the vicar of Christ. The Inquisition is the most infamous thing in history. It was devised by the popes and used by them for 500 years to maintain their power. For its record, none of the subsequent line of holy and infallible popes have ever apologized. They've never apologized for that. It happened before. And the Bible warns us it's going to happen again. And we need to begin to get prepared as the remnant. And this is, going to in, this is, this is what's going to... Um, let me get. Let me introduce the next section. Uh, Babylon has been killing people through the religion of peace in the Middle East even today. Babylon in the West, through legislation, is slowly setting the stage, the groundwork, for the Western Christian to either compromise or get persecuted through the introduction of gay marriage laws, hate speech laws. And they're going to force us to begin to change our Bible, make it gender friendly, and take out specific uh, sins out of the Bible. This has already been broadcast. I showed you a, a clip of, of, of the call that is already starting to go out. One of the things that really 
amazed me the other day. I was watching a, a, a program on a discussion program on Fox News the other day, and a liberal commentator, and I enjoy the man, Juan Williams, was making a comment regarding the the, the, the debate that is going on in America with the upcoming uh, Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage for, for the Americans, which will have a dramatic impact, I believe, on how the church pra gets practiced. And for the first time ever, in my knowledge, in my understanding, in my hearing, I heard a left-wing commentator actually mention a name of an evangelical pastor, Rick Warren, with regards to his stance on the gay debate, the gay marriage issue, and uh, working towards a one-world peace system. And when I heard that, it brought chills down my spine, because when I heard that, what I thought of was going straight back into where, where Jesus started to speak about the persecution that is going to start to come on the remnant during the time of just pre just before the time of his before the time of his return where people in the church are going to fall away because of wickedness and it's going to be those people especially that are going to come out in the strongest fashion against the remnant it's going to be a fearful thing coming but i'm going to tell you now as darkness rises light is going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter and so babylon is going to be judged. Um, the Lord will not forget. Jeremiah 51, 63 to 64. When you finish reading the scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring on her and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here. I'm going to give you a break at this point and then we're going to go on to section 3 of this three uh, of, of, of Babylon 3 the call to get God's people to leave Babylon. Thank you. Alright, let's bring the talks on Babylon to an end. Deception in the Church series part 15, Babylon 3 Part B, and then there's a couple of things that I'm be headings that I'm going to be talking to you about here. But primarily, I'm going to be using a lot of scripture. This is where I said I'm going to be using a lot of scripture, and so I really need you to be patient with me as I use a tremendous amount of scripture. And I read, I'm, I'm going to be doing more reading out of scripture and just commenting on that. And I feel it's a, it's going to be a good exercise for you. Uh, and I think it will help you basically begin to learn how to exegete scripture as well uh, and basically extract godly principles out of scripture and begin to apply them to your life. What we're talking about now is disciples that, are, that need to actually come out of Babylon. Okay? And um, we need to be leaving Babylon and I'm specifically dealing with Revelation 18 verse 4 to 8 
I'm going to read that passage of scripture and then I'm going to be talking to you about not sharing in the sin of others, other people, being caught up in the offense of others. Now the reason I'm using that one is, is, is twofold. The first reason is, is I find that there's a tremendous amount of Christians out there with the lack of godly leadership in the church that are being uh, caught up in the offense of other people. And basically beginning to partake of the consequences of their sin. And I'll explain that in, in this section. This will give you an idea and a picture, and this is my second point, in being able to look at Babylon and using these principles of not being caught in Babylon so that you do not partake of the plagues of Babylon. It'll also start to help you to be able to come out from Babylon and extract yourself from, from, from being entangled by people who use witchcraft against you to basically promote their way, their view, or to hide their sin. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4 to 8, Revelation 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now the Bible will talk about her plagues in verse 8. We'll get to it. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as, as uh, the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overcome her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for, the mighty, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. I remember I said that the system is so massive and powerful that God himself, Jesus Christ himself, is going to be the one that actually dismantles the system. But, we can successfully come out from her and we can successfully live amongst her but not be part of her. And I'm going to show you that at the end of this, uh, the last section of this talk. Let me take you aside and give you a teaching on not sharing in other people's sins. And then you can basically learn these principles and then apply them to this chapter here, do not share in the sins of Babylon. And so you'll be able to take all these tools we've been given over the series and, and, and be able to use them in extracting yourself from churches that are Babylonian, churches that are Babylonianly influenced. You'll be able to extract yourself under, from out from under the ministry of hirelings and from wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, and we'll be talking about churches, we'll be talking about church leaders and we'll be talking about uh, people in churches and how to judge Babylon and Babylonian teachings in the next couple of scriptures which will tie, which will wrap up this long series. Do not share in the sins of others. If you are not careful, if you are not paying attention, it is very, very easy for you to get caught up in the sins of another person. And the quickest way to be caught up in the sins of another person is to become offended for that person without biblically analyzing the offense of that person. 
The quickest way for you to get caught up in the sins of others is to not use biblical standards of judgment, pure scripture, in judging people, their fruit, their behavior, and the situation in which they got offended, and their teachings. Now you've all probably heard the story of the tar baby where the fox is trying to catch the, the rabbit, and um, eventually he builds a tar rabbit. And he seduces the rabbit to come in and start to interact with this tar baby. And eventually the tar baby, and I'm, I'll probably get the story wrong because I've not heard it for many, many years. He, 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 the tar baby is not communicating. And eventually the rabbit either slaps the tar baby or tries to nudge the tar baby. And his paw then gets stuck on the tar baby. He can't get it off, and so he uses his other paw to try and get off, and that gets stuck. Then he uses his foot to get it off, and the next next foot. And so eventually this tar baby completely traps the rabbit. And that is what Babylon look, it does. It tries to get you to interact with it, and then it sucks you in. Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 19, 12 to 14 then two men, the two men said to Lot, Do you know anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who, who belongs to you? All right, so that's an association. That's a relationship. Who's, who, who's your connections here within this Babylonian city, the system? The men then said, Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So notice, again, Babylon gets judged because of what it does to God's people. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is going to, about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. The word there in the Hebrew is mockery. They mocked him. There was a spirit of mockery there. Stay away from people who joke and mock. Not just not joke, but who mock. There's a sinister aspect of mockery. Stay away from them. The Lord does not like that. That's just a side thing. Uh, I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later on. About the different types of people who are associated with you. And how they interact with Babylon. So there's a separation that needs to take place. Especially when judgment comes. Don't be associated with people. Who are in judgment. Be careful when people come to you with an offense against someone else. Because of what that person apparently has done to them. Be careful that that offense is actually not a judgment or a discipline regarding their behavior or their actions and not basically an attack against them because of who they are. Be very careful you know, because what you need to do is you need to separate yourself from such a person, especially if they are moving into the area of judgment. Number 60, 23 to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Datham and Abram. Again, again, 
in the, remember what I said about the Old Testament being a, 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 a example for us. Here are the children of Israel, the Old Testament church. And there is an element in the Old Testament church that is rebelling against Moses' authority that is God-given. And God is about to now bring judgment on this clan. And God says, separate my people from them. Come out from them. Move away from their tents. Interesting. So Moses got up in verse 25, went to Dathan and Abraham, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. Okay? You've got to get this clear. This is a theme of coming out. Do, you do not share in her sins, so that you will not receive her plagues. And this is a theme that will go through in terms of being called and separated out from people who are going to be judged by God because of their sinful behavior, whether it's within the church or whether it's out the church. Now notice, the response of the son-in-laws of Lot were mockery. Here, the response of Korah and all of them was accusation. They accused Moses of what they themselves were doing. But here Moses says to them, separate yourselves from living with them, from their tents, from their homes. Don't touch anything belonging to them. We'll see what Abraham does to the king of Sodom later on. Don't touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of their sins. You will pay a price for your association with someone who is going to be judged if you are associating with that person and their sins. Isaiah 48, 20. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Let me tell you something. When they come and accuse you of splitting the church, are you splitting the church because you're saying we need to come away from these people and these teachings? No. You are not splitting the church. They are the ones that are actually splitting the church because they are the ones that are starting to walk on the broad path that leads to the world and Babylon. You stay on the narrow path. You get off the broad path if you are associated with the broad path, if you've got any connections with the broad path, with the Babylonians, you come out from them. Jeremiah 51 verse 6, flee from Babylon, run for your lives, do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her for what he, she deserves. I cannot tell you the number of believers whose ministries and relationships have been shipwrecked and destroyed because they have taken an offense on behalf of someone who has been disciplined because of their sin by godly people or by the Lord. Jeremiah 51.45 Come out of her, my people, run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 15-20 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? Okay, let's just pause there. Paul says, never. What is the name of Babylon? The mother of prostitutes. She is the Number one, prostitute. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. You begin to associate yourself. You become one with that person. Physically, mentally, spiritually, you become one with that person. And if that person has been coming under the discipline of the Lord, you are going to come under that self-same discipline. Logically, you will come under that self-same discipline because you are one with that person. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So if you are one with the prostitute, in sp- you are one with her in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Verse 18 in the Amplified Version uses a beautiful old English verse that people don't like today, which is shun immorality and all sexual looseness. Flee from impurity in thought, word, or deed. Now the definition for the word shun is persistently avoid Ignore, reject someone or something. Now anything to do with Babylon, you need to flee from. You need to shun. Persistently avoid. If you've got a problem with alcohol, you don't hang around with drunks and the bar scene. If you've got a problem with drugs, you don't hang around with drug addicts and the drug scene. If you have a problem with sexual immorality and pornography through the, the, through the computer, you set up programs and you set up a watch for yourself with your partner, your wife, your husband, so that you can shun, persistently avoid, ignore and reject those things in your life. And it is also the same with a Babylonian person, a Babylonian pastor, a Babylonian prophet or an apostle, a hireling, a wolf in sheep's clothing, or a believer in the church who consistently and persistently wants these teachers to teach them what they want to hear. And these people are continually avoiding the sanctification of their life by the Holy Spirit. This is the type of person that needs to be shunned. But this is the type of message that is avoided in the church today, which is teaching people to be happy and to go around being happy, to live a sanctification-less lifestyle, because you can have your cake, Babylon, and you can have the church all in one go. Let me get off my little soapbox there for a minute. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are the temple, temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now here is a warning against adultery from verse 14 to 15, the two verses previous. What I've just read, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. I, this is, this is one of the things that I find so annoying. Uh, it, it, it gets me to a point where I'm looking at some people in the church and, and, you know, obviously I won't do this, but I just want to punch them in the face so that they can get some sense into their head because 
the, 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 the associations they have are with unbelievers. And, and, and they are continually, being, their, their relationships are continually being influenced by unbelievers who are using all the manners of mannerisms and methodologies of Babylon to influence them and not be influenced. I maintain the only relationship you should have with an unbeliever is if you have been commissioned by God specifically to go in and get that person discipled. And if you have not got that person discipled in a year, you need to move on, put that person on your prayer list and focus on someone else. But if you are in a relationship, a consistent relationship with an unbeliever and you have not been witnessing to them, it is unfair for the unbeliever to have you in their presence because one day they're going to turn to you and say, why did you not tell me when they walk into hell? And it is dangerous for you to be in their presence because that unbeliever will be continually dragging you down to their standards and using the methodology of witchcraft, manipulation, domination to get you to compromise your standards, to go to places where you shouldn't be going, to listen to things you shouldn't be listening to and to be seeing things which you shouldn't be seeing. And it frustrates me. It frustrates me. How compromised young Christians are and how ignorant they behave when it comes to these matters. I, I, you know, I, it blows my mind when they get involved, when they get involved in, a, in a relationship. A young Christian girl gets involved with a relationship with an unbeliever. You know, they come into church, they get in on well, and the minute they miss church, I can guarantee you they're having sexual intercourse with an unbeliever, and bang, their testimony is gone. Their testimony is gone. That unbeliever has won. Babylon has won. And then if they get married to this person, and then they come crying to me five, ten years later, oh, look at my life. You have violated the word of God. What did you honestly expect? You activated a negative process of sowing and reaping. You broke God's law. Therefore, you have sinned. And now the consequences of the sin is you are now married to an unbeliever who will not come to the Lord, who's not interested in coming to the Lord, and it's breaking your heart. And there are all kinds of other things going on within your marriage relationship. And voila, here you come and you sit on my couch and you say, Pastor, will you pray for me? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? And I'll talk about Bilal later. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The only time you need to be associated with an unbeliever is to share the gospel message with them. And you will see this. You will see this at play in the, people's, the illustration of people's I give you later on in this, in this message. Woo! Soapbox time here. Romans 12.2 Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Babylon. Don't conform to the Babylonian pattern. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop thinking like the Babylonians in the church. 
Stop bringing Babylonian principles in the church. Stop bringing Babylonian philosophies in the church. We have the Bible. Thank you very much. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. I'm telling you, the more you get to know the Bible, the more you will be able to see through the camouflage of Babylon and the Babylonians. And you'll be able to discern God's will for your life when you are being pressurized with these people. And if you find yourself pressurized by these people, get out of their company. Psalm 1. Anyway, let me get back to my theme, which is don't get caught up with the fence of others. Okay, I want to add this in here because I feel it's important and it'll give you tools to basically stay out of the Babylonian system as well. So, 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands and do not share in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen a Christian take on themselves the sin offense of a brother that is actually sinning and covering up their hidden sin now from my pastoral point of view i'm dealing with people in the church and when the minute you start to really get into the deep issues of their deep strongholds and you start laying uh, open these these wounds and these sinful behavior patterns that affect the church around them and affect their relationships, these, these, these brothers then, or sisters, run out and run away from the disciplinary process. Now remember, remember, the disciplinary process is not necessarily a negative process. It's a process of getting you to be who God wanted you to be. And so it's a process of taking away the things that are besetting you, the things that are holding you back. And it's using the method of 1 John 1 9. Confess, repent, renounce, receive your forgiveness. And so when you start touching in on these people, pride starts to rise up, selfishness starts to rise up, they run out of your church, and then they and, and then then they run into another church, and then the church there asks them, well, Why are you here? Oh, I've been abused. And so they gather that person up to themselves, they release that person into ministry, that person's strongholds have not been dealt with, and then people in that church in their protecting of this person, start to take offense with myself or our church because we have been spiritually abusing them without applying biblical procedures to the situation. I cannot tell you the number of times this has happened. This, this happens to me more often than I can ever imagine because I run a discipleship training system in our church. And I will never leave a person coming into our church the same place. They will have to change or they will have to leave. They will be discipled. And the discipling process is, number one, dealing with the things that beset you and setting you up so that you can achieve the things that God has planned for you. So in this age of religious correctness, oftentimes true biblical speech is frowned upon. And... Uh, People are lazy, ignorant, and just plain stupid in terms of how, you, how they handle people with regards to offense. Listen to what David said. What you should do with Psalm 15 is, is I'm going to read it to you and put in a few additions from the Amplified Version. 
But go home, open your Bible, and just and just sit and look at this verse, this 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 uh, psalm, and meditate on it. Meditate on aspects of it. For example, Psalm 15, verse 1. Who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Lord, what do you, what do you mean by that? And then the question here that the psalmist is asking is, Lord, who's going to live with you? Who, who, who has permission to live with you? Who is going to live with you in your heaven? And then the answer comes, those whose walk is blameless. Here's a bit of the amplifier that I poured in. Walks and lives uprightly and blamelessly. Who does what is righteous. Okay, works righteousness and, 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 and is justice. There's justice. You begin to take on an offense of another person without applying the word of God to that person in that situation. You could possibly be perpetrating an injustice against the person who is dealing with your friend. Who speaks the truth from their heart. Speaks and thinks the truth in their heart. I, 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 I tell you, the I'm shocked at how, how much compromise, lies, office, uh, lies, um, betrayals that I've seen coming out of people's mouths that are coming from their heart. How they speak. I mean, whose tongues utter no slander, nor does evil to a friend. I'm going to be, you know, I'm, uh, one of the books I'm writing on spiritual warfare, and I've got the first book ready, but I don't have enough funds to produce it yet. But be that as it may, the, one of the books I'm going to be writing in spiritual warfare is, is on weapons. The Christian weapons and the enemy's weapons and how they get used and what the effects of those weapons are. And then I'm going to be talking about what happens when a Christian actually uses a satanic weapon against another Christian. And here it is. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur upon the others. You know, who doesn't do evil. I cannot tell you the number of people where I'm, I'm, I've, I've wanted to disciple them and I've gone into these deep areas of sin and a conflict arises, they walk out of the church and then, boy, do, do, my name is Mud out there. Verse 4, who despises a vile person. Alright? People who are evil. You need to despise them. Get them out of your life. But who honors those who fear the Lord. It, it seems to me, now this is my perception. It's what I see. It's what I'm thinking. That... More people who are vile, sinful, and despicable are honored than those that are actually holding up God's truth. Continuing in verse 4, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. If you, if you say something, do it. I accept people for, you know, if you come and tell me something, I'll accept you for what you say. I cannot tell you the number of times where people have been so upset with me when I've accepted them at, 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 at what they've said. And then I've come back at them and I said, you said this. I accepted you for what that, that, that meant. But what they say and what they 
do were two different things, and they don't like me pulling them up on that. You know, where is it? Where is the time where we get people that come out and say, will say something and actually stick by it? And no matter what it costs them, even if it's outside the church, who lends money to the poor without interest, verse 5, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Now this is the definition of an offense. (coughs) Excuse me. An offense is an annoyance or a resentment brought about by a perceived insult to you, oneself, or to another, or to, or disregard for oneself. All right. Let me let me let me uh, read that again. Offense. It's an annoyance. It is a resentment that is brought about by a perceived insult to or disregard for oneself. So, here we have your friend Joe. And Joe has been, Joe comes to you and says he has been hurt. Now, taking up an offense on behalf of someone else means that you now get next to Joe and you become offended with whoever has offended Joe. So you become annoyed and you begin to resent that person who you perceive has insulted or hurt Joe. All right, this is how people become connected with someone else's sin. All right, remember, I'm talking to you about being connected with Babylonian sin, Babylonian people and their sin. This is one of the ways that, they, that, that this, this begins to happen. And this is where you need to be very careful by using Scripture at all times to check out people and what they are saying to you. One of the great characteristics of the body of Jesus Christ, one of the great strengths of the body of Jesus Christ, is that we care about people who are suffering, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's spiritual or emotional. And it's one of the strengths of the body of Christ that we we, we like to get next to people and carry their burdens. But, if this is used without any scriptural understanding, without any scriptural guidance and the wisdom that comes out of the scripture with regards to these situations, this then becomes our greatest weakness. And this is when we begin to be compromised by a Babylonian or someone that is very, very strongly influenced by the Babylonian or flesh, or their flesh. And this is where we get tied up with their sin. Now, this is important. This is very, very important. Just bury this in your mind. Let it sink in. There is a big difference between a genuine burden and a false burden, which is actually a sin that this person is covering up. Beware. I'm warning you, beware when you support a believer that is in a legitimate, beware that this is a legitimate burden and not their sin. 
So as we come in and we want to seek to console and we want to encourage and we want to support our friend Joe. And if you are a Joe out there, forgive me, I'm just using Joe Soap, Joe, Joe Blog, Joe whatever as an, as an illustration. That we want to come and, and, and support you. We have got to be very, very careful that the offense is not because of your sin. But there is a genuine hurt and there's a genuine abuse that has taken place. Because we may be tempted to take up the offense or the cause of a brother. And if that offense is a sin offense, we then get linked to you and to the consequences of the result of that sin. So be very, very careful when you seek to come in and console someone and support someone that you are actually supporting a legitimate burden and you are not, act, you are not supporting a believer who has been disciplined because they have undealt with sin and that sin is beginning to affect the relationships of the body of Christ and someone with kingdom authority has come in and said, no, we now need to stop you and we now need to deal with this issue within your life and they begin to implement the procedures of biblical discipline within that person. There are so many people where, where correct biblical disciplinary procedures have been influenced. They run to another church and they gather around themselves people who will take up the offense on their behalf. And that offense just opens up the door to all kinds of witchcraft, spirits of witchcraft, will uh, Belial, which will destroy their ministry and their, and, and their relationships within their life. And they will become subject to the consequences, the plagues of that sin. In sympathy, we may come to resent and stand against the pastor. I've, I've seen that in my life so many times where people in the church resent me because I've dared to uh, correct someone in the church. They, they begin to resent Christians. They even begin to resent the church or whoever's to blame for this offense, this annoyance or resentment brought about by a perceived insult or disregard to that person. That person's feeling may be due to a misunderstanding, it may be a difference of opinion, it may be their rebellious attitude, it may be emotional instability, it may be childishness, it may be immaturity, it may be an inability to be able to understand how to speak to people in authority and that person speaks back. It may be due to a whole lot of things, but you need to be able to understand and you need to be able to discern not to take an offense on behalf of that person because the minute you do so, you link yourself with that person's sin. These sinful behaviors might be biblically being dealt with by a person who carries kingdom authority. And you might then have begun to insert yourself between a person and the authority of God through the Holy Spirit exercising the word of God on this person. You might be, you might be stepping between that authority and the person in sin and therefore stopping the ministry that God wants to exercise within that person's life. Now, just think about that for a second. What do you think is going to happen to you when you stand between God correcting one of his sheep and the sheep that persistently and consistently wants to go about doing its own sinful things? 
What do you think is going to happen to you if you insert yourself between a legitimately disciplined biblical correction taking place? It is a very, very dangerous place to be. There are always two sides, humanly speaking, to every story. But spiritually speaking, there are three sides. And only an idiot develops an opinion based on only listening to one side without gathering all the facts. I'm your friend. I am your brother, but I will guarantee you come to me to talk to me about someone else and what they have done to you. I will find out all the facts, not only from you, but from that other person. And I will guarantee you this one thing. I will not support you in your sin. And that's one of the things that I will first of all say to someone who comes to me because they've been hurt. The second thing that I'm going to do when that person comes to me is I'm going to say to that person, listen to me here. Have you exercised the Matthew 18 procedures? If they're from another church, I will say go and implement Matthew 18 against that person. Go to the person. Say, look, you've hurt me here. Settle the matter. If the matter is not settled, take a witness. Settle the matter. If the matter is not settled, take it before the church. Let the church judge. If that has not been dealt with, I'm going to ask you why you are not dealing with that. And if you don't want to do that, I'll guarantee you will not stay in my company long. The third thing I'm going to tell you is this. I'm now going to make an appointment with that person. And I'm going to go to that person. And I'm going to say, listen, you've come to me with these issues. Can I make an appointment where the three of us sit down together and discuss this according to Matthew 18? I want to tell you something now, my friend. If, if, if Joe is legitimate... And as a legitimate cause, he will stay with me. But if Joe has an illegitimate cause, he's not going to stay much time with me. He's going to, he's going to say, oh, don't worry about that. Oh, no, I'll just forgive and, and we can forget about the matter. But Joe won't forgive and forget because Joe will find other people who are silly and stupid enough to not judge the matter like I've just judged the matter. Think about this for a minute. What do you think will happen to you if you are interfering in a godly biblical disciplinary process. Because you are protecting someone and allowing them to continue practicing their sinful behavior. What are you releasing into your life? What are you releasing into your family's life? What are you releasing into the body of Christ? By all means, love, encourage that friend with hurt feelings. But always reserve your opinion and avoid taking sides until you have all the facts. And then proceed with a biblical mandate. If someone comes to you and you're a member of the church and they start tearing down the pastor of your church. The Bible says if you want to bring charges excuse me, against an elder... In Timothy, you need to bring two witnesses. So you need to say to your friend, where are these people that you've heard this from? Let's, let's all of us go and we will talk to the pastor. If it's genuine, they'll do it. If it's not genuine, they'll give you every excuse and you will not hear from them again. And they will continue their murmuring, murmuring and grumbling. And eventually, the judgment will come and like Korah, You'll be called away from them. Step aside from their tents. Don't touch anything from them because you do not want to be a partaker of what's, of, of what's coming onto their life. 
As a pastor of a church for nearly three decades, I have seen this happen time and time and time again. I cannot tell you how many times this has happened. It has happened in every church that I've ever pastored. Honestly, all the good pastors out there, it's happened to them as well. I do not know how many times I've been accused of spiritually abusing people. I do not know how many times I've had delegations attack me in the defense of these people while I'm in the process of counseling them in removing sin strongholds from their lives. Now, that is how easy it is to actually become a partaker of, a, of, of someone's sin when you take offense on behalf of them. And this is the Babylonian system. It gets you to accept their ways very subtly. It gets you to accept their teachings very subtly without judging the teachings, without judging the, the, the way of doing things. And I'm going to be talking about how you can judge these situations and how you speak to Babylon later on. But do not become a part of Babylon's sin. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, and so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And what her plagues? Revelation 18, I've just read verse 4, verse 8, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine, she will be consumed by fire. In a, that, that is the ultimate end of Babylon. But can you imagine releasing a spirit of death into your relationships, your family, your church, because you've taken up an offense or you become a partaker of a Babylonian or a Babylonian teachings? So what happens is death comes in to anything that is of, of, of God. Remember? What we said about Pharaoh and listening to false signs and wonders. The, the, mourning, famine, a, a lack of understanding God's word, disruption within in, 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 in relationships. Just, it, it just, it's unbelievable what takes place when you allow sin to basically go unchecked within a body and allow other people to take up an offense on behalf of that person who is sinning. Now, the angel speaks for God, and he calls God's people to leave the city. Uh, and he says, you need to forsake the enticements, you need to forsake the idolatry, you need to forsake the self-sufficiency, you need to forsake the love of luxury, you need to forsake violence. Now, violence, not just physical violence, but that is what this city symbolizes. Okay, so now we're looking at Babylon 18. We're looking at coming out from her. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 18 to 29 where, where the Lord Jesus speaks to a church, the church of Thyatira. <coughs> Excuse me. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, I'm going to break up and unpack a couple of things as we're going through. I know your deeds. Jesus knows as a church exactly what we are doing. 
he knows as his individual disciples exactly what we are doing. And so this church here in Thyatira, he comes along and he says to them, I know your deeds. What are they? I know your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So here is a church that's been planted and it's been growing in its ministry capacity and love, faith, service, and perseverance. And they're doing more than what they did when they first started. So things are happening in this church. But there's a problem in the church. And so Jesus now addresses the problem in the church. Because the problem in the church is they have a Babylonian influence coming in and dividing the church. So the Broadway is being attached to this church. And people are starting to walk away and splitting the church onto the broad way. So Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, for you who get shocked when God's judgment actually falls, I want you to meditate on this. Verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Powerful. Alright? The Lord is long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to salvation. And so, we've got to understand here that He's given them time to repent. So verse 22, the judgment comes. What is the judgment? I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Go and look at Romans chapter 1, the progressive levels of suffering there for those people who start to reject the truth of God. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. So all her followers, her children, will begin to be subject to her judgments. Unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. So those people following her in ministry, those people who are her followers, death is going to come into their life. Death, mourning, famine, consumed by fire. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, very, very important, right, those who are on the, 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 the narrow way, the remnant, to... To you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. You know, all this mystery. I tell you, I'm gonna, I, I, I want to write a, a, an article and maybe preach a sermon or a podcast on all this new, this new terminology that people are starting to brand around. You know, new day, new anointing, you know, stepping up into a higher level. I want to actually just break it down and, and, and look at scriptures. I say, why do I, for example, why do I need to step up into a higher level when through Jesus Christ I have access to the very throne of God? Anyway, let me not get sidetracked. So, the deep, so-called deep secrets of Satan. This is, that's that cup that the Babylonian church holds. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Come out from her and hold on until Jesus comes. Very, very significant. Right, now what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be giving you a pause now and, and, and then I'm going to be looking at 
comparing disciples and their different reactions to living in Babylon. How do you live in Babylon and separate yourself so that you're not partaking of a sin at, at, at the same time? Right, let's, let's begin this section now on and, and wrap up Babylon 3. And what I want to do with this section is go through a lot of scripture and compare different types of people in the Bible who lived in Babylon. So, for example, under men, I'll be comparing Lot and Daniel and Samson and Joseph. And then under the women, I'll be comparing Lot's wife with Esther and Lot's daughters with Ruth. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to just look at their, 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 the way they lived. Just, just get a feel. Listen, listen, to, listen to the tone of Scripture as it describes their lifestyle and their emphasis and their character. And Carolyn's going to be bringing in a sermon on the series with regards to the godly characteristics, godly character that you would need. But it's very interesting when you actually just listen to the tone, the comparison, because I'll be bringing them together and, 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 and you, you, you see the emphasis where they emphasize things. And this is what will help you understand how to be separate from Babylon, how to be separate from the Babylonian system while still living under a Babylonian kingdom, a Babylonian influence system that is at work right now. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to take a derogatory statement, quote, but I actually want to just use it within this context of Babylon. Now, the statement is this. You can take a man out of the bush, but you can't take the bush out of a man. Now, I want, I want to use the statement like this. You can take a man or a woman out of Babylon, but how much of Babylon will they allow you to take out of them? How much of the world's influence do you still have in you? How much of the Babylonian influence do you still have in you? Now remember all those scriptures I was talking about and, and I got in my soapbox a bit about light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness, associating with unbelievers, Christ and Bala. How much of Babylon is still in you? What degree do you still connect with Babylon that you haven't cut? We've got many, many types in the church, many different types of Christians, and I'll be talking about that later on. Sheep, goats, and war horses. Uh, we've got different types of churches, and we read in, you can read in Revelation the first three, the first, chapters two and three, basically seven types of churches, and the influences of Babylon that has been allowed within that church, and how it actually influences the church, and the and and the people and families within that church. So, how much, you can take them out of Babylon, but how much of Babylon will they allow you to take out of them? And oftentimes, and this is where my last section went with taking offense, oftentimes when you start coming into people's lives and, and you start to disciple them, and you start to touch on these areas of Babylonian influence, if they specifically don't want to give it up, that's when you're going to have the clash 
within the church. And that's when you get them, get them run, run, running away and all kinds of stuff taking place and offense and sin and all this. We are all living in Babylon at this particular time. But we are part of the kingdom. We are not of this world. We live in the world, but we are not of this world. The other thing that you need to understand is that Babylon is now beginning to rise. And my personal belief is we are seeing the rise of the mother of harlots. We are seeing her rise right now. The Babylon 13, the, the, the beast of Babylon 13, Babylon 17 and 18. It is happening in my mind right now. So, question. How will we measure up as we live in this system, this Babylonian system, the system of this world. When Babylon is judged, have we left Babylon? Or will we remain in Babylon like, son, like Lot's son-in-laws and mock the call to separate themselves from Babylon? From Babylon? When Babylon is judged, have we left or will we be trying to look back on our Babylonian lifestyle and, and, and hanker after it like Lot's wife and like the children of Israel did, looking back to Egypt saying we were better cared for in Egypt, in Babylon. When Babylon is judged, have we left or... Will we continue to fail with regards to our character and our lifestyle because we do not want to allow the influences of Babylon out of us like Lot and his daughters with regards to sexual relationships? So how much of the Babylonian system and lifestyle is still in you right now? You've got to come out of it and you've got to let that stuff come out of you. And that is the sanctification process. And that is why Babylon hates talking about the true Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the cross and what he did on the cross, the word of God and the sanctification process. Because those four things effectively take you out of Babylon and take Babylon out of you. Okay, let's go into comparing believers. Let's look at Lot. So we're going we're gonna to look at Lot here. And this is an interesting passage of scripture because it comes from Luke 17, 26 to 33. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Notice the suddenness. Verse 28. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day. And in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever tries to lose their life will preserve it. You try and keep hold of the systems of Babylon and disguise it while you're in the church. You are going to lose everything the day judgment comes on Babylon. Be warned. 
Now, let's look at Lot, Lot's choices. It's interesting to note that he always had a tendency to lean towards Babylon. He always had a tendency to lean towards the world, whereas Abraham had a tendency to lean towards the promised land and the kingdom. Genesis chapter 13, 8 to 13. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. We, we are family, he's saying. We won. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So he gives Lot the choice. So now listen, listen to Lot's choice as opposed to Abraham's choice. Lot looked round and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So, always commenting about the kingdom. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. Remember, I just made that comment in one of these podcasts, I can't remember which one, that whenever people go towards Babylon, they go east, and whenever they go towards the kingdom of God, they go west, as, as, as in relation to the land of Canaan, Israel, Jerusalem, as opposed to Babylon, the city of Babylon, uh, east. So the two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, this is interesting for me. While Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. So, here is the beginning of the progression. One, Lot saw. Two, Lot chose. Three, Lot moved into the vicinity of the cities on the plain. And probably the face of his tent, the door of his tent, the door of his home was pointing towards Sodom. Verse 13, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Abraham chose to live in Canaan, the promised land. Lot chose to live on the plains and pitched his tent facing Sodom. So, another little interesting story here, and I, and I hinted at it earlier as we were doing this podcast. And it's this, Lot gets kidnapped. All right, Genesis 14:22. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So there was a raid against the city of Sodom. And they were all kidnapped, all the possessions taken. So then Abraham decides, okay, he hears about it, and then he decides, he takes his 300 and whatever men, and he goes and rescues Lot. So at the end of the battle, they sit in there, you've got Melchizedek, you've got the kings of Sodom, you've got Lot, you've got Abraham. And Abraham then rejects any offer that the king of Sodom gives him. Very, this is, this is something that you will see in all the people I mention. There is, there is this distaste and this distancing and separation from the world system and from Babylon and from partaking of anything within that system. It's very, very interesting to note. Now, verse 22 to 20, 21 and 22 of verse 14. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the kingdom of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth. All right? He will not touch 
anything that belonged to the king of Sodom. So now we move on. So now, now you'll notice that when Lot gets kidnapped, he was living, verse 12, in Sodom. So he's moved. He saw, he chose, he lived near, he moved in. And now Lot and his family get fully involved within the lifestyle and system of Babylon. But the problem with Lot is there's no discipleship taking place within his family and there's no separation from being influencing the system of Babylon that you see with Daniel. So Lot gets involved fully with the life and being at the gate, he's been at the very center of commerce, uh, government, and everything that takes place at the gate of the city. Now enter the two angels that are now coming to destroy Sodom. 19 verse 1 Genesis. The two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. He's involved with the governing of the city. Involved with the commerce of the city. But he knows. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He knows who these guys are. But he also knows the environment and the city in which he is living and a part of. Two to three, my lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they said, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house, and he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Okay, now, the effect of Babylon on an undiscipled family can now be seen starting to take place as the judgment of, Bab of Babylon, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, now starts to reach the final stages of implementation. You will now, now see the effects of an undiscipled Christian, how they will handle the judgment that is coming. 12 to 14, the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws. Now notice, they are outside with this crowd that have been bane to have sexual intercourse with these two new men that have come into the city. That's where they were. They were out there outside. And they were pledged to marry his daughters. So he says to them, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. The word there is mockery. Mocker. It's a mocker. And, and, and mockery is one of the characteristic influences to look for in when 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 you are speaking to a Babylonian, look for mockery in their response to the things of God. Now here is the danger of hesitating when God speaks to you, especially in the face of judgment. Verse fifteen and sixteen, Genesis nineteen. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here." Or you will be swept away with the city in punishment. 
Now here, here is what someone will do who has Babylon still in them. Alright? So we've seen how Lot progressively moved into Babylon and allowed Babylon to move into him. Verse 16. When he hesitated. He still hesitated. Here are two angels. He's bowed before them. He knows what they're like. He knows what they've done. He's, the warning of God is there. You know, they blinded the people's eyes. His sons, son-in-laws are mocking him. And he still hesitates. And these angels had to grasp him. The men grasped his hand and his wife and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters the angels literally had to grab these people because they were so tied up with babylon that when the time of judgment comes it was near impossible for them to extract themselves from their love of babylon and so these angels grabbed them and led them to safety out the city for the lord was merciful to them and that is the power of intercession because Abraham had been interceding. And you can read that in verse 27 and 28. So do you, do, do you see the, the, the mentality and behavior of Lot towards Babylon and how Babylon then began to influence his family? And in the face of judgment and persecution... There was that hesitation. In the days that are coming, when, 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 and if you read the words of Jesus with regards to his second coming, and persecution starts to come, there are going to be many, many Christians who, who are, have one foot on the narrow road and one foot on the broad road. And Babylon is still attached in a strong way to them. And they will hesitate. And they will be lost. Don't take my word for it. Go and read the scriptures. Now, now let me compare Daniel and what Daniel does in regards to living in Babylon. Now, just listen to the difference here. I'm going to read 21 verses out of Daniel chapter 1, and then we're going to go on and look at a couple of other stories that are significant on, in terms of Daniel and how he handled himself and how he interacted with the leaders of Babylon. Daniel 1.1 In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenza chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Now, listen to this. This is, this is significant. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. All right? So now, he's bringing people, the people of God, he's bringing them into the Babylonian system and he's training them into the Babylonian ways so that they can serve in the Babylonian system of the governance. Let me read on. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Right? So now that's what was happening to Daniel. So the method that Daniel, the, the king used is they separated these young men, selected them, separated them, trained them in language and literature and all the other arts of the Babylonian empire, 
And then in that separation, they had to separate them specific types of food that came from the king's table. So we see that in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to train, be trained for three years, and after that they entered the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, notice the difference between Lot and Daniel. And how they interacted with Babylon. So Lot pitched his tent, chose, moved, lived in, got involved in, undiscipled, and got consumed with the Babylonian system. Look at Daniel 9 verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Right? Key word for you to understand. As we are within the system, there needs to be a resolution that we make not to allow the system to influence us. So he resolved not to defile himself with royal food or wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So now he's beginning to learn how to interact with Babylonian rulers. Verse 9, now God, now because of the resolution, God now comes in and steps in and starts to show favor. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord King who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the God whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with those of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed with it, to this and tested them for 10 days. Now I'm not saying go and do the Daniel fast or whatever uh, and stop eating meat. I'm not saying that, alright? I don't not eat meat. I enjoy my meat. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the God took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So now, what I want you to notice is there's a resolution. Favor then gets issued and there is a separation that, for me, when I look at the rest of the stories, there's always the separation from Daniel to the rest of this cadre of Babylonian advisors. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So the activation of the giftings now starts to take place within the Babylonian system that now they are now going to influence the Babylonian system in a powerful way. They're not going to be consumed and subsumed by the system. They're going to influence the system, but they're still going to be remaining separate. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Meshael and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Very interesting. All these hidden wisdoms of Satan, mysteries, deep mysteries of Satan. When you boil it down, and you can actually talk to a Babylonian or a worldly person, and you boil it down where they're not ranting and raving by trying to defend their ideology or whatever, you will find that when you present the Word of God in a clear, godly, anointed way, the common sense of God's Word will just blow away what the, the babble of these Babylonians that they'll be offering. Now, I want you to keep it. Pay attention to verse 8, the res, the Daniel's resolve. This is a resolve that you will see in all the illustrations that I'm going to give you in this section where God's people begin to excel because they resolve to say to stay pure to God's kingdom and the implementation of God's kingdom in this Babylonian city, this Babylonian system. Now, the definition of resolve is to make a firm decision to do something, to resolve to do something. My question to you, what is the level of your resolve to God? How much are you allowing people around you who are discipling you to remove Babylonian influence from you? So we go on in Babel, uh, we go on in the story with Daniel, and one thing I want you to notice is that even though you are implementing the things of God and the favor of God is upon you, you will still be confronted by the brutality, viciousness, and evil of the Babylonian system and the Babylonians. All right, you got to be on your guard. You cannot put your guard down and be blasé about this. You're at war. Pay attention. So in Daniel chapter 2, we come, we come to the first crisis, or what I would say might be the first crisis, because it's chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and so the king's having a dream. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So what happened, so what happened is he wakes up and he, and he summons all his wise people. But notice, Daniel is not with these guys. And you will notice that. I noticed that all the way through. So he tells them, I want you to tell me my dream. I want you to give me an interpretation of my dream. And so what happens is these guys say, well, tell us your dream. And he says, no, because you're going to give me a whole lot of, of nonsense and babble on about the dream. You tell me what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And obviously they say, we can't do that. And he then says, I'm going to kill you all now because you're a bunch of fakes. So the order goes out to now start killing off all these advisors, magicians, and stuff like that. And so we come to verse 14, where the man that is charged to carry out the execution arrives at Daniel. All right? When Arok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact, speaking truth to power. You, you, you need to understand what that means and what that looks like. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? So obviously Daniel wasn't with them when this was taking place. Arok, that's my understanding, that's what I see in this. Arok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, 
This is what Daniel's first step was. Verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery. He went to God first. Alright. That's the difference. Accessing God first. So he, he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. <coughs> Verse 19. During the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised God from heaven. And we see now how Daniel went in and dealt with that. Daniel always seems to be apart from the other wise men. Verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Okay, and so Daniel then comes in and he gives the explanation in verse 45 to 49 of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And because of that, in verse 49, Daniel's request, verse 48, Daniel, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished on him many gifts. Now you've got to remember, you are in Babylon. And because of that, favor of God, there are going to be people in Babylon who are not going to like that and you will have enemies. Be warned. So, in the next chapter, we have the story of the fiery furnace. Okay, now notice how this transpires. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, six cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the, dedicate of the dedication of the image he set up. So the satraps and all of them, etc., from all the provinces, assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now, remember what I said. The purpose of the Babylonian system and the purpose of the head of the Babylonian system is ultimately to get you to worship the Antichrist, the, 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 which is the devil, the devil incarnate. So notice this now. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language. See the tie in there? Babylonian system. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn flute and all the other musical instruments, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There it is. Always ends in worship. Politics, finances, religion, all are going to be used to get you to accept the mark of the beast. Worship. So whoever didn't fall down is going to be put to death. So the king of Babylon, the head of the Babylonian system, will always require at the pain of death that you worship him. I mean, you look at what's happening in the Middle East to this religion of peace. If you don't worship their God, you will be put to death. That's the Babylonian system. It's coming to the West. And they're going to start through legislation, hate speech, and they're going to start changing our Bible. And eventually, when the trumpet sounds and that takes place, it's going to get worse. Babylon's, Babylon's purpose always is to get the world to worship Satan at the pain of death. So you compare this with the Antichrist in the middle of the seven years in Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Then I saw the second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. Now that's the 
Babylonian ruler of the Babylonian system, and made the whole earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Okay, and so through all kinds of signs and wonders, in verse 14, it ordered them to set up an image and honor the first beast, who was wounded by the sword yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Again, worship or die. You will, you will abide by this, you will worship the devil, or you will die. And that is where the implementation of the triple six system will take place, and that will begin the three and a half year great tribulation. Anyway, let me get back to Daniel. As a child of God, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must never be at ease in Babylon. Okay, if you are an effective disciple and you are under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you will always be walking into situations where you will be disrupting the enemy and the, and his purpose of making those people worship him. And he will always come at you. Daniel chapter 3 verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And so in verse 12 to 18, we see the story of how Nebuchadnezzar got so angry with them, he commanded them to worship him on the pain of death. They refused, and so they were then thrown in to the fire. But this was their declaration. You can see in verse 16, they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up now. I just want to make this point. The message that is coming through the Babylonianly influenced church right now is a message of ease, comfort, peace, prosperity, happiness, where you will not face any trials. You can declare whatever you want. It's your day. It's a new day. All of this will take place. And as you speak, everything is going to be aligned so that you can walk in victory. But here is a believer who is successful in Babylon and then gets put into a situation where they have to choose. I will either have to worship the Babylon king, the Antichrist, or I'm going to stand up for God. Here, physically they were delivered. But many, many actually go through death and then get delivered into the hands of God. But notice their attitude. They resolved to separate themselves continually from the system. They would not bow to the system, but they would speak truth to power. But then when it came to choosing the system, they threw themselves onto their God and said, Lord, if I live, I live. If I die, I die, but I will serve you forever. Do not be ease, at ease and comfortable and safe with the peoples of Babylon and its leaders. Always be alert. Always be watchful. Daniel chapter 3 verse 19 to 30. So, so Nebuchadnezzar was furious with these three guys. And his attitude towards them changed. Right? When you're in the world and you're dealing with worldly people. 
they can seem nice, they can seem favorable towards you, but when there is the conflict of kingdoms taking place between you and them, I will guarantee you they will change. He ordered the furnace heated seven times harder than usual and committed some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up the three boys, three men, and throw them into the blazing furnace. It was so hot that these guys, some of these guys died. And then we see the story of the four men in the furnace and, and Nebuchadnezzar calling them out and making a declaration to God. Verse 28. Now I want to... I wanna, Compare two verses of scripture here that shows you attitude in the face of persecution. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and here it is, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Notice the comparison between these guys and Lot, and Lot's wife, Lot's son-in-laws, Lot's daughters. They were willing to give up their lives. Not, not only that, they had already separated themselves from the system and what the system offered them, which was signified in the food. But here they were willing to give up their lives to stick to the things of God. Now compare that to Revelation 12 verse 11. I'll read that in a few minutes. But after I've read these two verses of scripture, 29 and 30. So now Nebuchadnezzar then decrees. I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of these guys be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And they were promoted. Notice how fickle these guys are. One minute, you're getting thrown into the furnace. The next minute, you're getting promoted. Don't be at ease with these people. Now compare verse 28, and they were willing to give up their lives, with Revelation, 6, Revelation 12, verse 6 to 11. Verse 6, The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Now, here, here is the attitude, mentality and behavior of an overcomer. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Go and read the warnings of Jesus in Matthew with regards to the church and you will see in evidence there the difference between those when persecution comes that are going to fall away and the remnant that are going to stand. Babylon will always fool you into thinking you can have it all. You can have your cake and eat it without consequences. Babylon's purpose is to get you to worship the devil. 
So to live in the coming time of Babylon rising, you're going to have to train yourself into understanding how to live and overcome in life. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as shrink from death. Let me give you another story from Daniel, the famous one, Daniel in the lion's den. Very interesting one here. Never be at ease in Babylon. So Darius now comes along and he appoints 120 satraps to rule over the kingdom, verse 1, Daniel chapter 6. And he's got three administrators over them, one of whom is Daniel. And these satraps were made accountable to them so that the king would not suffer loss. So Daniel now distinguishes himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him up over the whole kingdom. So now he's going to get promoted. All right? At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Now, this is very interesting. Um, I've just got to, I've just, this is my personal opinion on this. Okay? The remnant church today, the, 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 the enemy, Babylonian system, are going to, they have to try and find a way to deal with us. But they can't because... You know, a godly person is probably one of the most law-abiding, positive people within the community that you will find. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to conspire against us by rewriting the law. And so trap us. And so this is what these guys did here. So notice this. Babylon is going to come in the days ahead and rewrite the law. And that law... And various other laws that they're going to rewrite are going to have unintended consequences with regards to how the church is going to worship and how the church is going to function in the days ahead. And the pressure of those laws is going to further separate those who, in the church who are starting to walk the broad path and those in the church who are starting to walk the narrow path. So the enemies of Daniel start to come in there and they start to try and investigate him to try and trip him up. So verse 4, they could not find no corruption, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Verse 5, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Okay, whoa, pay attention. Look at the laws, gay marriage, hate speech, and the consequences that are going to radiate out of that and the laws and promotions that are going to come out from that in terms of the pressure to rewrite our Bible. We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So I want you to note how they had to change the law of the land to attack Daniel. Very interesting in light of the laws of gay marriage, anti-discrimination, hate speech, human rights that have been promoted today. These laws will link issues with hate speech and human rights. Now, question. How will you stand and how will you conduct yourself when Babylon rises and comes hunting you, will you be prepared to be thrown to the lions 
or into the fire because you resolved to stand for God against the laws of the land? Babylon will ultimately demand that you worship Satan. No matter what face it gives you, no matter how benign it tries to appear to you, no matter how godly it tries to appear to you, ultimately they are going to lead you to kneel before Nebuchadnezzar, to kneel before the Antichrist. So, they set the trap. You need to never forget that you live in a world at war and you were a soldier. So Daniel 6.6, the administrators come along to the king as a group and they start to flatter Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that he wants to be worshipped. Nebuchadnezzar, no, Darius, sorry, this is Darius. The, The king of Babylon, you know, the ruler of Babylon, Antichrist, he wants to be worshipped. Satan wants to be worshipped like God. May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Notice again, Daniel is not with these guys. Verse 8, now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Darius put the decree in writing. No matter what the cost, you need to resolve in the days that are coming to serve God. You triumph over them by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony, and you do not love your life so much as to shrink from death. Verse 10, Daniel 6 Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs rooms where his windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done. Babylon can be defeated even if it costs you, your life, your career, anything, everything. But to defeat Babylon... It has to be God who moves against Babylon himself. Divine visitations. God's mercy being released. The arrows of God being unleashed from heaven. Righteousness exalted. You know, to get that national and regional level of revival has to come through biblical discipleship. uh, With such an anointing on evangelism teaching. People have to begin to walk like Elijah, a spirit of truth in the church has to be released. A fear of the Lord, not this running around, you know, like, like apes. Salvation, deliverance needs to be preached and practiced. Prophetic and apostolic anointing that comes from God. Uh, people need to be walking around like Jehu, you know. Uh, Yahweh Gibber with his legions of angels need to be released. You need to be, you, you need to... Grab hold of the kingdom of God and, and apply its mandates and principles. So in verse 11, obviously these men were watching for Daniel. So they, these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Rushed back to the king, told the king about his royal decree. And unfortunately the king can't change anything. So... Daniel has to now get thrown into the lion's den. So verse 16, the king gave the order and brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually 
rescue you. All right, now we all know how that story ends. Okay, what a difference between these two men's lives, Lot and Daniel. What a difference. I, I tell you, it, it, it never fails to amaze me when I see the difference. Now let's look at two other men, Samson and Joseph, all right? Strong men, fit men, well, de- well defined in their bodies, and really powerful. So let's look at Samson first. I often wonder how effectively he was actually discipled by his parents or if he was overindulged. First thing you've got to know is that Samson's parents were given the order for him to live a separated life. He's, you know, a holy life. Holiness is a separation to God for his service. As believers in Babylon, we need to really, really gain an understanding of what it means to be separated to God. Sanctification. In Judges 13, we pick up the, the story of the angel of the Lord, who comes along and now begins to want to implement a deliverance for the nation of Israel. So, again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man from Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now here are the instructions. Now see to it that you do not drink wine or fermented drink, and you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because... The boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to the Lord from the womb. He will take and lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, beware of the attractions of Babylon. Young men, young women, beware of the attractions of Babylon. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Let me read that again. Replace one word. Do not love Babylon or anything in Babylon. If anyone loves Babylon, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in Babylon or the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world, from Babylon. The world Babylon and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There needs to be a detestment a hatred, a distaste in you for what goes on in Babylon. You need to really develop that. You need to, you need to look at what they say, what they do, how they practice things, and, and, and there needs to be a distaste for it. Now, last of the eyes, how well was Samson discipled? Verse, chapter, uh, Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timonah, and saw there a young Philistine woman. Every single time you see Samson, he's looking at women. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now remember, I went off on my soapbox about this earlier on. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Fellowship, what, or what fellowship can light have with the darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Belial 
the comparison of Christ with Belial. Belial is like this outlaw spirit. It's a gangster spirit. It works in conjunction with Jezebel and the spirit of divination. Now, if ever this thing starts to get loosed within your church or within your family or within life or within your life because you're associating with, with Babylon and Jezebel, a Jezebel or a, a spirit of divination, this spirit is going to sabotage your ministry. It's going to attempt to destroy influence or sabotage your ministry. It's going to try and undermine your authority and it's going to try and steal anything that it can from you relational-wise, personal-wise, whatever. Deuteronomy 13, 13. That troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Go and read Judges 19 at home, the story of the Levite and his concubine. That is, in essence, the spirit behind that story, I believe. Uh, go read 1 Kings 21, 10 to 13 uh, as well, and you'll see how Jezebel uses the spirit to come in and, and undermine and promote her plan in bringing false witness. Romans 12, 2, I've read this to you before. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to Babylon, but be transformed by the renewing of mind that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and His perfect will. Here's a warning. Be very careful of how much association you have with Babylon and his people. Have good relations with people there in the, at your workplace, at school, wherever. Have good relationship with them. But always be aware of who they are and what they belong to. Judges 14.10, we go back to Samson. Now his father went down to see this woman because Samson now wants to get married to this Babylonian woman. He wants to get associated with an unbeliever. And there, and there Samson held a feast as customary for young men. When the people saw this, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Alright. Who? who? So, so the Philistines are giving 30 Philistine men to be mates with Samson. Evil associations. Beware of who you associate with. Samson liked to have parties in Babylon. And he liked to associate and have games with Babylonians people. The other thing that Samson liked in partying is he liked to gamble as well. He, liked, he, he, he associated too close to the lifestyles and vices of the Babylonians. 12 to 13. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said. So he's interacting with his people. He's having a party with his people. So he's just killed a, a lion, and now the bees have inhabited the lion's carcass, and they're producing sweet stuff. And so he gives them this riddle about the lion and the sweet stuff. He says, if you can give me answer within seven days, I'll, I'll give you 30 sets of clothes. If you can't, you give me 30 sets of clothes. Now, notice how Samson, because of of his lust of his eyes, because he's always running off the Babylonian woman, he becomes passive in the face of a, of, of a Jezebel. So he allows a woman through sexual manipulation to compromise. He allows a woman to get him to, 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 to get, he compromises because he is allowing a Babylonian woman to sexually influence him.
And so in 16 verse 18, you know, she's sobbing, she's crying, she's saying, you don't love me, you hate me because you've given this people a riddle, but you haven't told me. And he's like, I haven't even told my parents, and oh, carrying on and carrying on. And then he tells her what the riddle is because of it. he bows under her pressure. This is a pattern that you see played out in Samson's life. Don't blame God and don't blame other people when you fall into temptation and when you fall into sin. James 1, 13 to 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when, he is, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Go and read Psalm 1. Satan, Babylon, will always provide you with anything you want to meet your weakest needs and your deepest fleshly desires. The devil will all, always cater to your weakness. And so enters Delilah. Judges 16, 1-4. Now, where is Samson? One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He, spent, he went in and spent the night with her. Okay? People of Gaza told Samson is here. So they surrounded the place. They wait for him all night to the city. And they made a move during the night saying at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until midnight. And then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city and gate. And together the two persons tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them on his shoulders and carried them off to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometimes later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? The associations are so critical in terms of staying away from them in Babylon and connecting with true Pauls, true disciple makers in the kingdom of God. Here we have the same pattern that we saw in chapter 14. He allows the pressure of a woman's influence through passivity to make him give up the things of God. One of the saddest aspects in this passage of scripture, Judges 16, 17-22, can be found in the last part of verse 20. She cuts off his hair. And then she shouts at Samson, Samson, the Philistines upon you. He wakes up from sleep and thought, I'll go out before and shake myself free. Now here it is. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How sad. How sad that he did not know that the Lord had left him until it was too late. Lord's gone. His sight is gone, his ministry is gone, his leadership is gone, he's now in bondage, he's in slave labor, he's subject to mockery, and he is absolutely blind. Compare him with, with, with Joseph. So Joseph now gets betrayed by his family, 
and he becomes a slave. Now, what a fascinating story. A slave becomes the ruler of a Babylonian empire of Egypt. Genesis 37, we pick up the story in verse 36. The Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, listen to the tone of this, this story and compare it to the tone of, Joseph, of, of Samson's story. What does your story sound like when the Lord listens to it? <coughs> Chapter 39, verse 1. Just listen to this. Joseph has been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was in, one of Pharaoh's officials and captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Verse 2, here it is. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. As he lived in the house of Egyptian master, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and all he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, here's the thing. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. Enter Jezebel. Enter Delilah. Young man, young woman of God, there will always be one of these waiting to tempt you. If you're a young man or a young woman of God, there will always be someone from Babylon who will tempt you away from God to destroy your life, to destroy your relationships, to destroy your ministry, and even if it is possible to deceive the very elect and take you out of the kingdom of God itself. Verse 7, After a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Now, here is what Joseph did to try and prevent that conflict. He refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. Recognize I want you to recognize this. You need to recognize who you are and who they are and what they are and what they ultimately want, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. If they are Babylonian, if they are an unbeliever, do not violate God's word because that will be the first sin you commit, violating God's word. The second sin you commit is getting involved with these people and they will get you to sin sexually. Now how different from Samson who ran after the woman in worldly places to Joseph. Look at how Joseph deals with the temptation of a Jezebel as she begins to try and ply her trade with him. First of all, he recognizes sin as sin and secondly, he stays out of its way by completely avoiding that woman altogether. So from verse 9 to 19, we see that playing out. 
No one is greater in the house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And so on and on she goes trying to ply her trade and trying to get him into bed where he will commit the sin of fornication which is sex outside of marriage. Uh, then, unfortunately, he gets caught. She catches him because one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. And so she caught him by the cloak and said, now you come to me. So then she accuses him of raping her. And now his master's attitude towards him in the light of this accusation comes true. So here we have Joseph in verse 20 where he gets a, a setback. But is it actually a setback or is it taking him to a deeper level of training? So you need to look at his resolve and his response. And you can see, because I, I believe, because of that resolve and response to keep on staying pure to God, the, the anointing that God releases onto, onto Joseph or onto, God, onto his people in the world or in Babylon still impacts the destinies of people's lives in Babylon. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And then again, you can read on there how Joseph's excellence and God's favor put him into looking after the whole prison. What a comparison. What a phenomenal comparison between Samson, a judge, and Joseph, both living in the kingdom of this world. I'm going to turn to some of the girls now, and I'm going to probably wrap up this uh, and go a little bit more quicker, and then you can basically go into this a little bit deeper. So we're going to compare Lot's wife and Esther. 1926 Genesis. Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In Luke 17, 26-33, um, interesting that Jesus uses the days of Noah and the days of Lot to compare and give us a picture of what takes place coming here in, in, as Babylon rises. But now I want you to look at Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Okay. For Jesus to actually bring to attention someone who was so involved with a Babylonian system that she had to get dragged out of there, an angel had to literally grab her and drag her out, and even in the dragging out, she violated the commands and she looked back. What was it that made her? Look back. Verse 33, I believe, gives us the answer. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And that links to the scripture in Revelation. Turn back and get it. 12.11 By the blood of the Lamb, word of the testimony, do not love their lives as so to shrink from death. In 19 verse 26 of Genesis, there is that word, that big 
word there that it starts off with, but. The big killer word. Why was there this disobedience in her? Listen. When God tells you to get out of something, get out of something. When God sends you into something, get into it and get involved. When God tells you to do something, do it. Sadly, in the church today, we've got many but Christians. Christians who are always looking back. Beware of associating with grumblers. Beware of associating with people that are always looking back to Babylon or always looking into Babylon and promoting what is good about Babylon and what is behind them. Exodus 16, 2 to 4 will talk to you about what happens to how God deals with grumblers. Now, compare Lot's wife with Esther. Just, I would suggest you go home and read the book of Esther. It is a beautiful book. A strange love story. A king. A captive young girl. A beauty contest. A surprise winner. An assassination plot thwarted. Betrayal. Attempted genocide. Forgotten words, bravery, caught intrigue, attempted murder, insomnia, plots, and unexpected twists in the story. And it's the ultimate story of justice and the triumph of good over evil, vindication God's way. Bravery. Esther 4.11 All the king's officials and all the peoples of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, they, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their life. But thirty days have passed since I have seen was called to go to the king. And you see bravery in this young girl of, of, of going in, verse 14, going in and, and, and stepping in. To an area of danger where her life is at stake. For such a time as this. Imagine. Imagine living to that statement. You are here today. Wherever you are. Wherever you are listening to this podcast. And you are living in Babylon. And Babylon is rising. But you are here because God wants you to be here at this time. For such a time as this. And in verse 40 in the last part, Mordecai speaks to Esther. And he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. How many Christians today are being influenced by Babylon like Lot, like Samson, like Lot's wife, like Lot's daughters? And they are missing out on this call because they have been placed in a situation for such a time as this. And notice, as all strong believers in Babylon, the first thing they do in verse 15 to 17 of, of Esther 4 is they go to the Lord. She says to Mordecai, go gather the Jews and fast with, for me and fast with me. If I perish, I perish. Same attitude as the three, three young men. Remember that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives as to shrink from death. I'm going to end off now, but I'm just go home and compare Lot's daughters with Ruth. I, I, I love the story of Ruth. You know, you've got Lot's daughters who, who, who are living in a cave and, 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 and beginning to get desperate. I've got no children. What they do, they get their father drunk and they have sex with their father and produce two nations that oppose the Jews from that moment on. Then you read the book of Ruth, who is a Moabite. And she holds on with loyalty to her mother-in-law and says, Your God will be my God. Your people will become my people. And you know what? She ends up in the lineage of Jesus himself. That is so powerful. Uh, pay special attention to when Carolyn gives you the sermon on, on, on the attitudes and characteristics of the spies. Let me bring this to a conclusion. Self-interest is at, the, is at the root of this system and it's full of pride. Now, as a believer, we are living in the system and we must not allow ourselves to become compromised or adopt the philosophy that drives the system and the root that drives the philosophies which is selfishness and self, I. This is a system that has become so part of life that is hard for us to imagine how to live without the system. But we do have the pictures in the Bible, the examples of men and women who have gone before us in the Bible. And they can teach us how to live and how to speak to the system and how to separate ourselves from the system and, and, and wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and be there at his return. Now this system began when people first assembled to make a name for themselves in Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we are not citizens of Babylon. We need to make sure that we are not laying up treasure in Babylon. We need to make sure that we are citizens of the heaven and we are laying up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. So we need to be able to learn how to repudiate selfish living within our lives. Come out from the system. Now finally, five quick points on how to come out from the system. And I'll probably be repeating these points and go into it a little bit more in depth in the latter sermons. Number one, recognize who you are. Number two, Recognize the system of Babylon and leave it. Number three, how do you leave it? You repent of any involvement with it or with its teachings or with its associations. You renounce them in the name of Jesus. You confess your sin to Jesus and then you receive your forgiveness. Number four, you then find a discipleship environment to begin your training and preparation and begin to understand that you are here like Esther in Esther 4.14 for such a time as this. And number five, become a disciple of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Amen. <music>